Welcome to President Joe Biden. Anybody following Israeli news this week might be forgiven for forgetting which country we're in. Biden hysteria is as strong, if not stronger, than Beatlemania. Actually stronger, because Israel historically didn't like the Beatles. Never mind, let's not get sidetracked. The presidential visit got so much attention this week, it almost made us forget about the elections. Almost, but not quite. This is election overdose, and we never forget about elections in Israel. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, talking to you from just outside Jerusalem, here with Anshel Pfeffer, who is recording from Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Hi, Anshel. It's the second day of a presidential visit, and we're all a flutter. Welcome to our new listeners, our returning and our faithful listeners. We'll be keeping you posted on all important election developments until November 1st, and let's talk over this week. Since we started with Biden, I want to figure out what this really means. I said you might all think this is America because of all the pomp and circumstance, but of course, his ratings aren't so great in America right now. We might even like him more here in Israel at this point. Anshul, do you think Biden has dazzled Israelis so far? And more importantly, has he dazzled the voters, changed anybody's mind or anything? Well, I think by now, most Israelis have a good idea of who Joe Biden is. And they've at least been paying attention for the last 49 years that Biden has been visiting Israel. This is his 10th visit. So it's not an unknown quantity. He's pretty well defined in the minds of Israelis as a pro-Israeli president, as someone who sees himself as a close friend of Israel, even calls himself a Zionist. He said yesterday when he arrived at Ben-Gurion Airport that I'm, I'm home. So I think in general, most Israelis have a, quite a similar view of him as he has, at least he claims to have. The critical question is, does all this presidential scenery, the the ceremonies, the fact that he is being hosted here by the current Prime Minister Yair Lapid, give Lapid in any way any kind of advantage going into the election three and a half months from now. We're recording this just, we have to say, at the four, on the 14th of July, which is uh, still how many days to the election? Have you, made, have you done the sounds? I counted 20 weeks. 20 weeks, okay. So, well, minus two days, right? Because Tuesday. Yeah. So, 20 weeks is a long time. We've got a long summer holiday in the Chagim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, etc. So how much of this impression will remain with us, with the Israelis when they go and vote? I, I expect very little, but on the other hand, it does help build this feeling of statesmanship, this aura that Lapid urgently needs to have I think, to convince more voters of his suitability for the job. And there's nothing like a presidential visit for for supplying that. I think that we will definitely look at whether this statesmanship has affected Lapid's polling. But to my mind, it's also a little bit about what Biden said. I mean, he gave a speech that I couldn't help but hear it as essentially APAC ready. It was, you know, exactly what an American president would say to the Israeli public in an APAC platform. And the Israeli public, I'm sure, was thrilled to hear it. And I think it might remind people that Lapid and Bennett government tried very hard to draw contrast with Netanyahu in bringing back American bipartisanship. And I think we're hearing commentary already that it's nice to see a Democratic president being so supportive of Israel, by contrast to Netanyahu, who really threw in Israel, you know, his lot and Israel's fate with Trump and the Republicans. And maybe that one angle will remain with Israelis, that this government and this prime minister 
you know, have symbolized, revived American bipartisanship, possibly. But as you say, Israelis have a short-term memory and they're stiff-necked people and it'll be hard to change anybody's mind. No, I don't think Israelis have a short-term memory. I think that Israelis have quite a long memory, but I don't think this is something which will necessarily be at the front of their minds when they go and vote in just under 20 weeks. But I do think that what we're seeing is an interesting dynamic that when Lapid and his people like to say, well, we've sort of gone back to the old bipartisanship over Israel in in the United States. I don't think that's what we're seeing. I think actually what we're seeing here is a sort of a solidifying of two axes. You've got the Netanyahu-Trump or the Netanyahu-GOP axe, and they are obviously very close to each other. And you've got the Lapid-Biden axe, which is both countries, the United States and Israel, are, are deeply divided. And each side has their own corresponding side in either country. Well, we'll have to see. I don't exactly see the Republican Party being hostile to the Bennett and now Lapid government, but we'll see how it plays out. Let's look at the other developments because, you know, underneath that spotless red carpet lies the snake pit of Israeli politics. And we had another big drama this week, and that was the merger of the Blue and White Party, the party of Benny Gantz, and New Hope, led by the Likud breakaway figure and current Justice Minister Gidon Saar. So I think they should be called the Great Blue White Hope, even if it doesn't work quite as well in Hebrew. But we're going to have a special guest this week to discuss it. Anshul, can you explain, remind us who these parties are and explain to us why this matters? Well, Blue and White, originally, the merger over two years ago now between between Benny Gantz's Hossein party and the Erla Pidzieh party and what became the Blue and White list, and there were some other parties there as well, uh, Bogi Alon's party, and a party of the gentleman who would be joining us pretty soon, that was supposed to be the big centrist movement that would finally take down Netanyahu. And in some ways, it was successful. It did in the second of this long series of elections, the second election of 2019. It even surpassed Likud and received more votes and one more seat in the Knesset. We know how Blue and White ended when Gantz, after the third election, succumbed and uh, broke his promises and entered the coalition with Netanyahu. Yeshatid withdrew and Blue and White shrank. They kept the name Blue and White in the last election. They only got eight seats, while Yeshatid emerged as the second largest party in the Knesset and, and is currently climbing in the polls. But basically what we have here is a life raft. It's a party which, on the one hand, is saving Gidon Sal, the leader of New Hope, another of the new parties of the last election, which were trying to kind of find a space on the right wing, but the anti-Netanyahu space and... As we saw, even though Saad initially very well in the polls, he only got six seats in the actual election, showing that that space is not as large as we thought. In polls over the last year, many of the polls over the last year, New Hope has fallen beneath the electoral threshold, and Saad is very obviously, obviously does not want his political career to end in that way, so he's now merged with uh, Gantz. Gantz, probably, if Gantz's blue and white had run on its own, they would have probably crossed the threshold as they did in the previous election. But Gantz wants something more. Gantz wants to salvage the, the possibility of still being a prime minister. He lost that chance back in 2020 when he threw his lot in with Netanyahu. Now he still hopes to somehow go back to that position. But to, for some kind of credibility, he needs a larger party, not just a single-digit party. It didn't work very well for Naftali Bennett, who was prime minister with just six or seven MKs, he wants to at least emerge as the third largest party in in this election to have a double-digit number of MKs. And he's hoping that by bringing on board Sao, 
he can get. Is that the polls so far showing that they're more or less polling as their total seats together, something like 13, 14 seats? Whether this will be enough for him to challenge Yair Lapid for the leadership of the centrist bloc remains to be seen. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they're trying to stake out a sliver of the ideological axis in Israel that runs from left to right. And it's as if blue and white took up the center space, but yet your Lapid was also a centrist party. When they merged, that made sense. When they broke up, yet your Lapid sort of retained the position as, or the image of looking like a center party that leans more to the left. And Benny Gantz's party, blue and white, is sort of center center, or some people might see it as center right, but now they've merged with Gidon Saar's party. And Gidon Saar is firmly in the right wing, though not in the Netanyahu camp anymore. So it's interesting to try to understand what kind of ideological ground they now inhabit and how many supporters there are in that camp. But as you point out, the polls are showing that right now their initial polling is more or less 14 seats, which is what the two parties currently have combined. And the history of Israeli parties that merge often shows that when they merge, they don't necessarily do better than their separate total amount of seats, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but Dalia, you used a dirty word there three times. You said ideology, and you're assuming... This has anything to do with ideology. It's not. It's about <laughs> Gideon Sarah's political survival and Benny Gantz's hope of perhaps one day being prime minister. It's nothing to do with ideology. This is all about positioning on not on the ideological political spectrum, but on the positional spectrum. Where, in other words, can, what coalition can they join? And they're staking out not just sort of the center-right position. They're also staking out a position saying we can sit with a wider variety of parties than Yair Lapid. Can we can form a coalition with a wider variety? And obviously we're talking here about mainly about the Haredi Orthodox parties. On the assumption that Netanyahu and his natural allies, i.e. religious Zionism, Shas and Torah Judaism, do not have a majority of their own, of 61, after the election. Gantz is basically saying to voters, and he's also already saying to the party leaders on the day after the election, I'm going to be the one with the most flexibility because Netanyahu is cancelled by the coalition of parties to which Gantz and Sal currently exist. But the Haredim won't cancel me. And Gantz has been very, I think, eager in the last year to differentiate himself from Lapid by saying, look, I'm not this ultra-secularist. I'm fine with Haredim. I'm very, you know, I, he goes to events with Haredim. He even had a Haredi woman in his party in one of the earlier elections, Omar Yankelevich. And that is a very clear political signaling, saying I'm the one who can bring the anti-Netanyahu bloc and the Haredi parties together into one coalition. Well, I agree with you that ideology is problematic, but I will, in defense of my use of the term, not that I need to defend it, but I want to explain why. Because first of all... Of course you do. <laughs> of course I do. Because the voters, first of all, are very clear about where they are ideologically. Voters know how to identify themselves and their voting patterns are very closely coordinated with their self-defined ideology in surveys, or I should say correlated. And I think that what you've said really captures the dynamic of this election. Is that ideology or identity? No, ideology. When we say, you know, do, where do you place yourself? So we disagree. No, but the we is you, you academics. It's not so much academics as it is pollsters because people are very, very consistently able to answer 
where they are on the ideological But that's identity. People pulling. talk about right-wing in Israel as their identity, not as their ideology. Well, then who's the academic? Because you're getting very semantic. But what I want to say is that the overarching framework of this election, like the other ones in a way, but I think it's very clear now, is two axes. One is the axis of coalition building, and the other is the axis of whether people vote based on their left, right, or center ideology. Identity. And I will say, despite what you said about Gantz and Saar basically doing this for to prove what kind of coalition bargainers they're going to be, their party members all week have been speaking about how they represent the center right in Israel. And they've been using that term openly, whether you call it identity or ideology hardly matters. They've, the point is they are appealing to the public listening in on that basis. And yet at the same time, they're hardly able to define what it means. So we're going to try to keep talking about that in the rest of this show. Let's move on to the other side of the spectrum, whether it's identity or ideology, from the center right to the left, because we have a few interesting news updates this week. Nitsan Horowitz, the leader of Meretz, has said that he won't run again. And also we have- He will run again for the Knesset, but he won't run for the party leadership. not for the leader of the Meretz party. And we know that the primary for the labor leadership is coming up next week. The primary for the spots on the list will be held on August 9th. Do you think these are- interesting? Will they change voter dynamics? Or are they just kind of the routine, almost ritualized stations of the journey we have to go through before we get to elections? Is this really going to change any voting trends in your mind, Angel? No, I don't think it'll change the voter trends. I don't think it's going to change. The identity of the merits leader probably won't change the voter trend in that uh, sense, though some people are thinking that with Zava Galon, and there are maybe some polls giving that indication, if the veteran merits leader comes back, Zava Galon, then some of the erstwhile voters of merits who were thinking perhaps of not voting merits this election will be con- convinced to remain. So that, you know, the, but these are, I think, are not very large numbers. Well, we're talking about merits, not very large numbers anyway. In the case of Labour, I don't think it's going to change because I don't think the leader is going to change. All we have is Mirav Michaeli facing off against party secretary-general Iran Khermoni. Iran Khermoni is a uh, veteran political operator, very experienced in the back channels of what is still quite a large labor establishment, even though it's a small party. But he's not seen as someone who can threaten Michaeli's uh, standing amongst the, amongst the members. It'll be very surprising if he gets more than, I'd say, 30%, probably lower than that. But it'll be a massive, massive surprise if Mirav Micheli loses next week with the leadership primary. And since I'm not expecting that surprise to take place, I, I don't think the voter trends will change that much. Well, the problem here is a bigger problem. Now that Yair Lapid and Yeshatid's biggest competitor in the center ground, Benny Gantz's Kaholavan, is sort of taking upon itself a more right-wing and if not pro-Haredi or pro-religious, so more open, more Haredi-friendly stance, I... I would imagine that Yeshati will, will, will be, even even if they don't want to be, they'll be pushed a bit leftwards, at least in the mind of many voters. And that means they're encroaching even further on what was Labour territory and, in a way, also on merits territory. And that means these two parties, who, let's not forget, 14, 15 months ago, before the previous election, both parties were in danger of extinction. They'll be in that same danger again. And the real question here isn't so much which leader of merits or labor can revive their chances. The question is whether those two, both of those leaders can get together and merge their parties in what is seeming to be an emergency situation for the old Israeli left. And if they don't, uh, chances are at least one of those parties 
perhaps, who knows, even both of them could be swept under by uh, a wave of Yeshatid. Yeah, I think that that merger, however, at this moment looks pretty unlikely, given what the party leaders on both sides are saying and given the fact that they tried that kind of merger in the earlier cycles and it didn't work very well. Um, and so, of course, you're right that there's a chance of one of them going under or even both of them. But that has been the threat and the chance every election cycle, again, over the last four cycles. Both parties have had to run on these campaigns that we call them gewalt, oh my gosh, in English, which is basically we might go under. It's hard to get people to take any other platform seriously when that's the main appeal to the voters is don't let us go under. So I think that we're looking at a campaign in which they pretty much do that again. At this point, I think it's unlikely that they'll merge, but maybe you think it's more likely. Right now, they're all denying it. Well, we've still got six weeks to go until the August 15th deadline for filing is actually less than six weeks, but about five weeks. But it really boils down to Merav Michaeli because I think merits are more desperate, probably should be more desperate than Labour. And Merav Michaeli has a really difficult dilemma here because on the one hand, she came to the Labour leadership a year and a half ago saying that I am going to revive Labour as the old Israeli party of power. Now she's saying I won't be able to do that in one election cycle. It'll take time. But to do that, we have to stand up for what Labour means, for our heritage and for the ideals of the Labour Party. And if we somehow dilute those with other parties, then we'll never get back to our old uh, position. We'll never regain that. And you can totally understand, Michali, but the problem is, is that politics isn't fair. The, the facts are that Yair Lapid has occupied most, if not all, of Labour's old ground and has pushed Labour into a very, very cramped space together with merits. So the question is, do you go with your vision of rebuilding Labour to its former glory or accept the fact that right now you're a tiny party struggling for your existence and therefore you have to make those accommodations? Right. That's a very good point, because I remember during the from the polling between 2013 and 2015 that Yeshatid and Labour were basically trading votes. And it seems like the bulk of those votes that once went to Labour and at the time was called the Zionist Union have basically gone to Yeshatid. So I agree with you. They're really competing for the same population. So as long as we're talking about surveys, let's just go through the very quick main observations of this week. There really has been no change in the overall trend of the parties regarding coalition formation. It's about half and half for the pro and anti-Netanyahu camp. That's what it's been this whole time. But the other interesting dynamic is that if we look at parties by their ideology slash identity, right, left and center, by that count, the polling averages since the elections have been called are about 66 seats for the ideological right-wing parties. But it all depends on how we count the new blue and white New Hope party, because together, they have about 14 seats. So if they count as right wing, that's 80. Although I guess they really can't be put in that camp because I don't think the voters see them like that. This is where we are in ideology. Angel, what do you think is interesting about the surveys this week? I think one of the most interesting points in the polls this week is Yair Lapid's personal standing. Just two weeks in office as prime minister, and already two polls are showing him jumping up in the suitability for prime minister question. Channel 11 has him on 36%, Channel 14 on 41%. And it's really starting to close the gap to Benjamin Netanyahu, who stays around 45 46% forever. And are these two polls just outliers? Is Lapid going to start uh, trending downwards again? I don't know, but look just what the office does to you. So it's time for our guest. Uh, today we have with us Alon Tal, Blue and White Knesset member, 
for many years leading environmental activist in Israel, professor at Tel Aviv University in public policy, focused on all aspects of environment, public health, and author of a number of important books on Israeli demography, sociology. And uh, the real question to ask is, what are you doing in the same party with Gidon Saar? Well, I think for a long time, Israel has suffered from a, really a false dichotomy, that one either belongs in a leftist camp or a rightist camp. And of course, the other side is illegitimate. And this kind of dichotomy really served Bibi Netanyahu well in holding together his right-wing block. But after a year in the Knesset, I've come to understand that that's actually a, a really imprecise political classification, and that most Israelis, the vast majority, are actually in the center. We all agree that there should be a market economy, but there's going to be people left behind, and we need interventions to make the safety net tighter. And we all agree that the legal system is a good legal system and protects human rights, and we need to uh, protect it. We agree the environment needs better protection. The short is, is that we need, in my mind, a new configuration, and I think by joining together and becoming now a alternative to a right-wing voting option and a center-left, if you want to call it that one, and providing a real central option, we have changed the political map, and I think it's going to be uh, the thing that determines who the next government's going to be. I mean, the word we is carrying a lot here. Kholavan, Blue and White, got altogether eight seats in the last election, which you were on the list. Gideon Sai got six. That's not a big we. It's a pretty small section of the Israeli public. Why do you think it's that that's going to grow now? When I was number 11 on the list of blue and white in the last election, and we had three or four seats, I didn't really think I was in a realistic position. In the last two or three weeks of the election, the Israeli public realized that Benny Gantz, perhaps a large percentage, I think, not insignificant, certainly more than people who vote for, say, Meretz or uh, the, the, the Labour Party. But that's a low bar. It's a low bar, agreed. But nonetheless, realize that maybe there's one politician who can break down these walls which make this such a polarized society, and that's Benny Gantz. And today, I think after his political rehabilitation that he, uh, in proving that his joining Bibi Netanyahu really was falling on a grenade to save the country in time of uh, its greatest public health crisis and its economic crisis, but when he situation stabilized. He did the right thing, and it was just as decent and honest as everybody knew him to be. I believe that as the election campaign goes on, we will get stronger. And at the end of the day, I believe that blue and white, the new hope, will indeed uh, form the next government, and that will be saving the country. Can you clarify one really important thing? Is there going to be a new name for this new merger, or is it going to be Blue and White, New Hope, as you just said? That's a long name. It is a long name, but that's above my pay grade. I think uh, hopefully (laughs) this will, as time goes on, we'll just keep calling us Blue and White. Okay, so let me ask a question that has to do with identity or ideology, depending on whether you're in Camp Anshul or Camp Dahlia. We were talking about this before. You know, Blue and White merged with Yesha Teed. You know, back in 2019, it created a huge amount of momentum for consolidating the center and the left, as you just pointed out, in the attempt to unseat Netanyahu. But it wasn't enough. It was almost enough, but it wasn't enough. And so the question is, do you think that blue and white, because it is still a little more value neutral than Yeshatid, which has a perception among Israelis of being just barely more center left, if blue and white is a little more neutral, can it be perceived as a little more kosher with by its association with New Hope for potential moderate right-wingers who might peel off from the Netanyahu block. Is that the aim? And if that's the aim, do you think it might work? Because ultimately, I think people do 
vote, as I argued before, in ways that are correlated to their self-identification. It's not a good idea to contradict the hostess, but there are two points with which I would like to take. Go, go ahead, with go you. ahead. Contradict. I have a feeling Angel's thrilled about it. The first one is, is that it wasn't quite enough. It, were it not for... I would say the duplicitous or the inappropriate activities of two members, renegade members of the Blue and White Party. I'm talking, of course, about Tzvi Hauser and uh, and Hendel. We would have formed a government on the basis of 35 seats. Okay, so that's the first thing. But the second thing, even more important, I resent the implication that a centrist party is value neutral, as if it's some sort of parva, you know, vague, anemic political configuration. On the contrary, I believe that. Looking at the Blue and White Party, we are as passionate or more passionate than the other party. Who has done more to stand by the disenfranchised and poor Israelis than Michael Biton? I think we can say that he's not value neutral. Who's done more to fight for the environment than me? Who's done more to stand by the Supreme Court and the the, the institutions of justice in the country than Benny Gantz? So the point is, uh, who stands more alongside of the immigration and helping immigrants than, than Penina Tamanashato? So we are passionate, but when you sit in the center, what does it mean? You're not locked into the orthodoxy that somehow a, a left-wing perspective is supposed to require of you. Rather, you can sit in the center and say, you know what, on this issue, I'm absolutely with the, with the progressives and this side, I'm more conservative, but you do it on the basis of values and commitment and not some sort of value-neutral uh, position. So why do you need Gidon Sao to bolster your message? You mentioned the list of, including yourself, of important lawmakers who've done important things. Why Why not run on your own? Because for some reason we were hitting a glass ceiling and we weren't going to get more than 11 or 12. And if Benny Gantz is going to become the next prime minister, as we hope he will be, we need to have a little more muscle. And the fact of the matter is there are some people who care very much, say, about Legalization of cannabis. Well, now we've got Sharena Skell on our team, okay? Some people might care a lot about the periphery in the South. Now we have the, the former mayor of Eilat or the education minister who grew up in Kiryat Shimona. My point is, is that the Gidon Saras team is a, uh, brings a lot of good uh, people to this, and we've worked with them for, the, for a year. When we got together to meet our new brothers and sisters, we all recognize we know these people very well. We've been working with them for a year closely, and there is almost not a single member of the New Hope Party that I personally didn't get involved with on legislative initiatives. So it feels quite natural, this, this uh, new partnership. I appreciate this language of brothers and sisters. I think I, I really I'm not saying that cynically. I think we really need this kind of language in uh, the Israeli political environment. But are you really brothers and sisters on one of the other towering issues of Israeli life? And that's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, Gidon Saar himself is very right wing on this issue. How much harmony is there between the two parties? You know, Blue and White has sometimes been a little bit understated, but we assume they generally support a two-state solution. You can maybe say yourself if you do. And Gidon Zar does not stand for that. So will that be a factor at all, or is it irrelevant to this election campaign? It is true that I personally am very committed to a two-state solution. I think Benny Gantz also envisions a two-state solution. And Gidon Saar and uh, several members, I wouldn't say not, even not all of his party, does not. However, what we can agree about is that we need to act expeditiously to begin to ameliorate and mitigate the conflict with the Palestinians as a preliminary step. Now, for me, that's a very important way to move forward towards a resolution and a two-state solution, and New Hope Party perhaps not. But what we need to do tomorrow in terms of improving the economic conditions and improving the environmental conditions, in 
creating some sort of a horizon for Palestinians and strengthening moderate Palestinian leadership as opposed to the radical Islamist. These are things we can agree about now. So yes, 80% of our agenda is common and 20% may be different. But we see ourselves as what we call a governing party. In Hebrew, they say, what does that mean? That means that in a large party, we have a little bit of room for diversity. Take the Democrats of the United States. You think that Bernie Sanders and President Biden agree about all that much? There's a lot of things they disagree about, but they find the need in order to be a party that can appeal to a large number of people. As somebody who established a Green Party in Israel, okay, it's very, very nice and self-satisfying to sit amongst a small group of homogeneous friends and say, gee, we really can sit around and sing Kumbaya, but at best you're going to be a small niche party, which is what, by the way, Meretz has become, unfortunately. And I think if you really want to play in the game, you have to give room and a broader, and that's what this party, being a centrist party, is about. We have room in the government, which I believe will form for right wing, for left wing, for Arabs, for Haredim, as long as we can all converge in the middle. So you just opened the next question your biggest asset, Kaholavan, Benny Gantz's biggest asset going into this election is on the day after. He is what seemed to be at least the party leader who can, who has the greatest flexibility to sit with the largest number of parties in the next uh, government, next coalition, where, when it will be formed. Who will Blue and White not sit with? That's a really important question. And we, uh, Benny said it. In every conceivable occasion, it's important that the listeners also hear it. We will not sit with a party which does not recognize Israel to be a Jewish and democratic state. And we will not sit with a racist party, which right now is the best way to characterize the religious Zionist party, okay, and and the Ben Gvir uh, perspective. So those are clearly the outer fringes. And it's very important to make this point. Why did this government of change fail? It failed because what we'd hoped for was to have all the more radical left and right sides converge towards a centrist, consensual position. Rather, in the end, they were the tail that wagged the dogs. Their demands and lack of uh, fidelity or discipline, however you want to call it, eventually led for this very complicated package to fall apart. So the first thing we have to realize is the next coalition which we form can't be a 6159 package because that just gives a carte blanche to radical elements to abuse their influential power. And that's exactly what Bibi Netanyahu will have. If he gets the 61 seats, it's basically saying to the radical racist right, you can uh, extort all kinds of concessions at the expense of the soul of this country. Okay, so you've mentioned Bibi Netanyahu. You didn't mention Netanyahu as the party that you won't sit with in the same coalition. We will not sit with a convicted felon. Uh, excuse me, an indicted felon. Uh, uh, <laughs> you think so? You're optimistic if you think he's going to get convicted. Yeah, that was interesting. This. Is uh, Ben Gvir, who has actually been convicted of assisting terrorist groups? So maybe it was not. A, so what about Shas? So, we, we so, are, so you won't sit with Shas then? I read there he's a convicted felon. That's and he controls question. the party. But he's paid his no, debt he hasn't. to society. He's been forced to leave again the Knesset because, again, period of moral turpitude. So I think what you're getting at is, are we willing to sit with Bibi Netanyahu? No, but, but you, said, you said felon, so Shas is out. Let me. <clears throat> Shas, Likud is out. First of all, it's not clear that uh, that Aryeh Dare will be on the Shas list. He won't be on the Shas list. He's running the show from out of Well, that, That's not something which I think we need to... Intervene on, but I would say it's make it very clear. Both Gidon Sar and Benny Gantz could have been prime minister as little as three or four hours before the Knesset disbanded. Both of them, the, the offer was on the table as part of a rotation with Netanyahu. And they both looked at the highest position in the land and said no. 
because they didn't want to play into this bifurcated game and knew exactly how, uh, what a damaging statement that is for the Israeli uh, democracy. So I think that uh, when we were in times of terrible crisis, Benny Gantz made a concession, which I think was the right and courageous one. And now that we're in more of a normal situation, I think he's spoken very clearly, time and again turned down that option. Why would we think he would take it after the election? I don't know. So the answer is no. Blue and white will not sit with Bibi Netanyahu as long as he is an indicted in Israeli courts and his innocence has not yet been proven. Period. Okay, now this may seem like a strange segue, but the fact is that the climate crisis is a huge issue in the rest of the world, as are environmental issues generally, including in in electoral politics in many countries. And, you know, given your history, you've been involved in the founding of environmental groups and green parties, and they never cross the threshold here. And again, when you talk about this in Israeli politics and media, it seems marginal, but we all know it's not marginal. It's urgent. So why is it kind of a political non-starter in Israel, at least up until now? Because the climate crisis informs all areas of our life, it is never a non sequitur. The fact of the matter is, is that tragically, Israel has been stuck in a uh, political paradigm which, where people define themselves as either right or left based on the map they would draw with the uh, occupied territories. Now, I would <laughs> think that my uh, dream would be that one day we'll have peace and then Israel will be a normal country with a very powerful Green Party, and I certainly would consider being part of it. Indeed, I was chair of Israel's Green Movement. But what the truth of the matter is, when I did as chair the survey and saw that we were going to get about 1.4% of the vote and realized that as a party that wouldn't cross the threshold, we'd basically be giving a gift to uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the largest parties, I felt it was irresponsible to stay in such a context. Now, I look at a country like Germany with its formidable green uh, political presence with envy, but then they don't have a existential, uh, you know, security challenge like Israel does. So that really is the simplest answer, but it may be the, the truest one. My own personal conclusion was is that as an environmental activist, I need to find a political framework which is broader and larger in which I can be influential. I'm very grateful that, uh, that I was given an opportunity to be part of the Blue and White Party. I think my role has increased as, you know, it's like the last man standing, but as, as somebody stuck with Benny Gantz through thick and thin, and I know I'll be writing the uh, environmental platform for our government. I know in the Knesset I was given free reign. I established the first committee in the Knesset subcommittee, which focused on climate issues. So I do take these issues seriously, and I believe that our party will have some important things to say about it. Thank you for all that, Alon We could continue talking about it. You bring a lot of passion to centrism, which I think <laughs> centrism The muscular needs. middle, I call it. That's the muscular <laughs> Radical centrist. That is good copywriting, muscular it's not middle. Mine. I Professor like it. Professor Giltroy gets the uh, copyright on that. Sorry. So thank you for, for being with us, and good luck in the next three and a half uh, months of, of campaigning. Well, thank you for having me. And it's party time, or as we call our new section at the end of each show, party animals. Now, Dalia, why are we calling this party animals? Well, this is based on a technique that we sometimes use in focus group research. I don't actually like to use it that much, but there are many people who swear by this technique, which is that it's a kind of comes from marketing tactics where you and you know talk to your focus groups and you say, okay, if there's a party or a company, if it's marketing, what animal does this remind you of? And I've done focus groups where I've asked this question and people really do have pretty interesting responses. They know very well whether they think a party reminds them of a jaguar because it's young and nimble and fast and cool, or whether it reminds them of an elephant, you know, slow and ponderous. And if that's the case, you're in trouble. 
but that's the origin of the party animal concept. Jaguars are usually driven by old people, but okay. So for this week's uh, party animal, I've got a question. Dalia, have you ever heard of an Israeli party doing too well in an election? Well, it depends on what you consider too well. I would venture to say that for the first almost 30 years of Israel's existence, there was one party that regularly got so many votes that they dominated the election. Nothing wrong with, the with a bit system, of stability in government. It didn't really help them. It wasn't very stable anyway. But I think they became too big to hold on We're not on talking to about that distant history. We're talking about something more recent, well, just a bit more recent. <laughs> I cannot okay. think of such What a I'm party. talking about is a situation where a party gets too many votes from the public and cannot field enough candidates, doesn't, doesn't have enough candidates to fill, to fill the spots on the Knesset list. Now, how can this happen? There is no requirement for a party to file a list of 120 MKs, candidates to be MKs. Now, a lot of the parties do. Not all parties field 120, but some of them, they always have a list of more candidates than the actual seats they're going to get. But it's possible because there's no minimum number that the, you only have to put actually one candidate at the top of the list. So it is possible that the party will receive more votes than it can use. And this happened just once. But when it happens, if a party receives more votes than its candidates worth, so it's usually around 30,000 nowadays, about 30 or thousand. Or even close to 40. Even close to 40,000 voters for one Knesset seat. And back in the day, you could have a, just a one-member party. But what would happen if a party would receive too many votes and would not have a, a sufficient candidates to fill the seats that it receives for their votes? Well, those votes, those additional votes, get redistribu- redistributed to the other parties. Now, when has that ever happened? Oh, you're, gonna, you're here to tell us. So it happened only once in 1977 to a party called Development and Peace, who was led by a man called Shmuel Sami Flatosharon. Now, Flatosharon was a very <laughs> colorful, Polish-born, French-Jewish business person who arrived in Israel in the, at some point in the 70s under rather mysterious circumstances. It turned out that he was wanted in France for tax evasion. He made a big splash here. He bought up buildings and set up companies in, in Tel Aviv, threw a lot of money around, and then he set up a party called development and peace and that that party had mainly one idea motivating it that it would be wrong to deport Flato Sharon back to the that back to France to face the music and strangely enough that party won enough votes for two seats however the only candidate that party fielded in the election was Flato Sharon that's the only time a party got too many votes and didn't have enough candidates to fill to fill all the seats. If you heard me chuckling in the background, it's because, first of all, Flato Sharon was a very colorful character. He eventually became media personality, and he was always provocative. But I think it's also interesting because nowadays, who is surprised when a personality-based populist type gets more votes than anybody expected? But back then, I guess it was a surprise. Well, it's also interesting that it happened in the 1977 election. Now, the 1977 election is perhaps historically the most important of all Israeli elections, that's the Mahapach, the turnaround when Likud finally came to power after all those years of Mapai dominance, which you mentioned earlier. It's an election where the story is of Begin finally, after eight failed attempts on the ninth, winning and Mapai finally losing power. There's also the story of Dash, the sort of centrist party of those days, being a major part of Begin's coalition and in bringing down Mapai or Labour. But 
you wouldn't expect in this election where you had these really massive old beasts of, of Israeli politics, Likud coming up, Mapai still hold it, trying to hold on, Dash is this new centrist party. It's surprising to think that 2% of the electorate voted for some corrupt, mysterious French guy who had just arrived in the scene and all he was offering was some very populist right-wing uh, ideas and the fact that he needs to stay in Israel and not be deported. Now, obviously, a few months after he entered the Knesset, there was an investigation and he was ultimately convicted of vote-buying. A lot of money was thrown around in that election. So perhaps we can't learn too much from it. But the party of, uh, of Platoshon, Development and Peace, is in a way a forerunner of today's populist, personality-centered parties that we're now so used to, and perhaps one could argue that the current prime minister founded such a party himself. I think that it was an election of disaffection, and we can definitely take that away uh, from the 1977 experience, especially after those first 30 years, uh, rough, almost 30 years, in which society was supposed to be so invested in the state. And now we know how dangerous that kind of disaffection is. So it's an interesting example. And that's a wrap. Just think we have only 20 weeks left until Election Day. And if you're not overdosed by then, you definitely need something stronger than us. Thank you so much to our producer today, Maya Ben-Nissan. Thank you to Amir Faktor and to you, Anshul, and to the listeners, of course. Join us next week. Signing off. Shabbat Shabbat Shalom. Shalom.